Good evening. Sadly, it is my last time with you. Well, well, I'm going to be in here in the morning to hear from Scott McKnight, because why wouldn't I be here for that? But, you know, it's my last time talking. In fact, you know what? The first time I preached in front of Scott, I was a little intimidated. Here's one of the leading academic experts on um, Jesus and stuff in the, in the world. Then I did carpool karaoke with him. And I realised that we're all good at something and bad at something else. And that, and that was comforting. Also, um, wasn't it brilliant to hear earlier about all the youth and children stuff? Isn't it brilliant, you know? of people in the UK that come to faith are aged under 25. If you've got a hole in the roof, stick a bucket under it, but don't stop investing in youth and children's work. Got to take it seriously if we believe in the church. But let me clear one thing up that someone said. It is possible to be wearing a check shirt and tan shoes and not be looking for love. (laughs) However, I am delighted that I am the cliche of a 20-year-old this evening. You know, it wasn't that long ago we were out for lunch. We were having a great lunch. And um, my little son, who's six, was explaining how his new favourite film is Return of the Jedi. Do you know, it's brilliant. For years you have children and they watch trash. (laughs) Then they get into things you moderately like, like Star Wars. There was a wonderful day in my family. We celebrated the removal of CBeebies from our television. Any of you that raised children before Mr. Tumble, you do not know how lucky you are. (laughs) But he was explaining how um, Return of the Jedi is his favourite film. And in it, there's these cute Ewok bears. And the cute Ewok bears are fighting the nasty stormtroopers. And the nasty stormtrooper kills one of the cute Ewok bears. The cute Ewok bear's dead on the floor. But the cute Ewok bear's got an even cuter baby Ewok bear. And the baby Ewok bear realises the daddy Ewok bear's dead. So he walks over to the daddy Ewok bear and he begins to cry as he hugs his dead dad. I said to my son Daniel, did you cry? He says, I don't cry. I'm British. (laughs) I said, where did you get that? He says, Disney planes. (laughs) Friends, it's good to laugh together. We're on holiday after all. Well, you're on holiday. I'm working. Anyway, um... (laughs) For one last time, would you turn your Bibles on? We're going to John 20, and we're going to start at verse 10. I'm sorry, I can't do three talks on Jesus and the lost, and not do one on the empty tomb. The thing on which the whole of history hangs. The most significant thing in the future history or present of the world is the empty tomb of Jesus. And we're going to look at that this evening. Starting at verse, it says 11 on the screen, but I think I'll start at verse 10. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white, seated where Jesus' body had been. One at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? They've taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they've put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realise that it was Jesus. Woman, he said, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? 
thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Miriam. She turned towards him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, do not hold on to me, for I have not yet returned to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am returning to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news. I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them. Hang on. The doors were locked. Nice. And he said, peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them with his hands inside. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. With that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone his sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now Thomas, called Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hands into his side, I will not believe it. A week later, his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Lord, as we come to your word, I pray you would bring life to what you want to say to each one of us. I pray, Lord, you would speak through your word into our hearts. And I ask, Lord, that as a result, we might be different. Amen. Do you know, I, um, I love Christmas, but I hate Christmas cards. Because Christmas cards make Jesus look cute. Have you ever noticed those Christmas cards? They're awful, aren't they? You get these Christmas cards on which the ox and the ass don't poo. And the hay's perfect. And the manger is straight from a flat pack at Ikea. And Mary is dressed like a blue nun. How practical. And everything looks perfect. It's things like that that ruin our image of Jesus. People think he's cute. Or people think he's safe. But as it says in the Chronicles of Narnia, he is not a tame lion. There's some stuff about Jesus we need to interact with, we need to realise, we need to engage with to understand how we should then engage with the world. And the first is this. Jesus breaks the rules. I think this is really important. We're not very good at breaking rules in the church. We're very good at making them. I went to Capernaum, you know Capernaum from, from the Bible, to where Peter's mother-in-law lived. Jesus spent a lot of his time staying with Peter's mother-in-law. Poor Jesus. He didn't get a marriage, but he got a mother-in-law. 
And I went to Capernaum to visit this place. And I went up there, it was about 40 degrees in Israel. And I went with my family, we went up to the bit where you go in, you know, a lot of the people in Israel don't believe the Messiah's come, but they're happy to take a quid off you to get you to look around the sites. And I went in, and my family all went in, but they wouldn't let me in. Because even though it was 40 degrees, there was a sign that said, unless your shorts went below your knee, you couldn't go in. And my shorts went just above my knee. So I was going back to the car park. My family have gone in and I was in a bit of a mood. So I'm back at my car. I'm thinking, I've come all this way. I've got to get in. Fortunately, I'm still down with the kids. There is something teenage boys sometimes do that they should never do. They put their boxer shorts above their bottoms, right? So I pulled my shorts down a bit. I did the boxer short thing and then my shorts were an inch further down and they were below my knee. I went back to the gate, the guy let me in. (laughs) Friends, how often are we prepared to make rules that stop people accessing what we're doing? What are the rules that are stopping people? Jesus doesn't work within social constraints. We looked at a Samaritan woman the other day, but here again, he, he appears to a woman. Now, don't get me wrong, we live in a different age now. But your average Pharisee got up every morning and thanked God they weren't born a Gentile, a slave or a woman. Women were seen as marginally better than slaves. A woman's testimony alone would not be enough in court. And yet, who is the first person Jesus reveals himself to resurrected? It's a woman. I wonder what type of person you are with rules. I'm someone, if it says like on the pitch up there, don't walk on the grass. Even if I didn't want to walk on the grass, I now feel compelled to get my brand new shoes and walk on the soggy grass. We're all built differently. But church doesn't know what to do with rule breakers. Do you know what it did with me? When I was 14 years old, I was banned from church for six months. That's tragic. That was about 7% of my life. Me and my best friend were banned from church and we're 14. I'm now 36. 22 years later, he's been in a church building twice. My wedding and one of my children's dedications. It's miles away from God. He's a barrister doing really well in the city of London. But, but you know what? He needn't have been lost. We just don't know what to do with naughty people. We've got to get better with rule breakers. You know what the church is lacking in the United Kingdom? Enough people brave enough to stand up, speak up and act up for Jesus. Basically, redeemed rebels. So if you're in here tonight and you naturally like to walk on the grass when it says not to, stop faffing around with all of that and start using that natural contentiousness you have for the kingdom of God. Because right now we need to redeem rebelliousness because we need more people that are prepared to speak up, act up and live up for Jesus. Society makes rules that are wrong. Here's one. Old and young should have nothing to do with each other. Do you know that 87% of young people want a parent or a grandparent figure in their youth ministry? 
not a brother or a friend. They've got brothers and friends. They haven't got parents and grandparents. We've got to start breaking rules to get our message to people. Another thing we've got to break, we've got to just start talking about Jesus. Everyone says, you know, your truth's okay for you. Don't share it with me. No, we've got to open our mouths. A friend of mine came to the UK. He's moved here as a missionary. I thank the Lord that we're a receiving nation of missionaries, don't you? For long enough we've sent them, we need to receive a few. And he gets to Heathrow Airport, he's never been on an aeroplane, he's coming from Nigeria. Collects his baggage, he's now got a decision to make he's never had to make before. Something to declare or nothing to declare. So he goes through something to declare. And he looks at the man on customs and he says this, I declare that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. The guy on customs looks at him, what? He says, I declare that Jesus died for you and you can have life in his name. They let him in. (laughs) Friends, we've got to start breaking some rules for Jesus. We've got to start breaking the rules of what seems possible or what seems sensible and start taking some ground for the Lord. The old and young thing, you know, there's some rules to break there, aren't there? Never forget, I went to preach at this church and I'm in the hall going for a coffee. And in the corner of that hall is a circle of four old ladies. Now forgive me with respect, they were really old. Like, they didn't have long. And uh, how to make friends and influence people. They, they were in their early 90s. The minister thought he ran the church, no chance. The church was run by this self-appointed subcommittee of 90-year-olds. They called me over. Young man, over here now. They added a fifth chair to the circle. And they started having a go at me. We've got no young people in this church. We've got nothing in common. Another one says, there's loads of kids in the town. We pray, but we can't do anything. Third one says, what are you going to do, Reverend Calver? I said, I live 130 miles away. But they just kept going. We've got nothing in common with young people. There's nothing we can do. There's no connection. At which point I said something either very brave or very stupid. I turned to four ladies in their 90s and said, have you ever been through puberty? Now, I had to draw it in quickly before I lost one. And I said, because the backdrop may be different, but some of the fundamental changes are the same. If you care about young people, reach out to them and make a difference. I got a letter six months later. Of course it was a letter. (laughs) And this letter told me every Thursday afternoon at five in the afternoon, there was a youth group of between 30 and 40 kids coming every week. This youth group had four consistent leaders. All female. All over 90. And by God's grace, all still with us. You know, We know when it comes to serving Jesus, we've got to break some rules. For too long, let's not let society tell us what's going on. Let's break some rules that need to be broken. Why? Because that's the thing to do. Jesus breaks rules in appearing to Mary. But secondly, he's full of surprises. Jesus is full of surprises. Surprises take you on the back foot, don't they? You don't know what to do. I'll never forget a big surprise in my life. When we'd had our first child, she was nine months old, and my wife, Anne, went away overnight for the first time. 
And Anne says to me as she's leaving the house, I can't believe I'm leaving her with you. I said, but I'm the dad. She says, I know, but it's still a big deal for me. And Anne went and um, me and Amelie had lots of fun. Came to bath time. Amelie's not mine. And um, she was in the bath. Tinky Winky was there. Dipsy was there. Lalo and Poe. It was fun. It was all going really well. I I'd bathed Amelie. It was all good. We were fine. Until Amelie decided this was the moment to do a poo. And she does a poo in the bath. I'm like, what do I do? What do I do? Anne, Anne, where are you? Anne, Anne, Anne's not there. So I'm like, what do I do? I've washed her already. So I run into our bedroom where we keep glasses by our bed for water at night. And I run round to Anne's side to get hers. And I go back into the bathroom. And, and before it gets to Amelie's head, I, I scoot the poo, I put it in the loo and I put the glass back. Do you know surprises are a challenge I think we've made Jesus boring to people but Jesus is full of surprises you can call my Jesus many things but you cannot call him boring he's full of surprises in this passage earlier on in John 20 we learn the first thing Jesus does when he's resurrected you know when it comes to the Bible we have got to start preaching it visually not just what it says we are living with a visual generation. We've got to start saying what it looks like. You know when Jesus resurrects from the dead, do you know what the very first thing he does? He folds up the dirty washing. He does. He folds up one of the two sheets he's been wrapped up in. Mary raised him really well. Then at some point he thinks, hang on, I'm the saviour of the world. And he doesn't bother with the second one. But it's a surprise, isn't it? He's resurrected. He folds up some dirty washing. Secondly, the incarnation is a mega surprise. The fact that God would come to earth as a person for you and me is outrageous. The fact that the God who threw the stars into space becomes a baby is utterly unbelievable. What a surprise. Did that because he loves you so much. And you know what? He's so humble, isn't he? He doesn't just become a person. He becomes the lowest form of human. A male human. I don't know if you ever thought about this. If God was less humble, maybe he'd have come as a woman. Because women are the superior gender, aren't they? Honestly, if you don't believe me, just get married. But the incarnation is an utter surprise. Third surprise. He's resurrected. Now, I'm not being funny. I have never known something so amazing caused so many thousands of people such boredom. The resurrection is the most outrageous, awe-inspiring, incredible thing. He was dead, he's now alive. That you might know life. It's unbelievable. When someone's dead, they're gone. When I was 13, my grandma died and I didn't believe my mum. So she took me to the hospice. They let me look at my grandma's body. I still didn't believe she was dead. She'd been made up and stuff and looked nice. So I was lifting her eyelid and blowing in her eye to try and wake her up. They kicked me out of the hospice. When you're a vicar's son, that's not good. But you know, when someone's dead, they're gone. But Jesus isn't dead, he's alive. When you go to his tomb, it's amazing. The garden tomb in Jerusalem is amazing. And there's these two beds in the tomb. And Joseph Arimathea was smaller than Jesus. 
We know this because by the feet of where Jesus would have been put in, they've dug out an extra bit to make room for Jesus. It's not made as perfectly as the rest of the tomb. It was done in a rush. But I tell you something, that bed is empty because he's alive. Too many Christians are bored of the empty tomb. Jesus defeated death that you and I might know life and that everyone else might know life in all its fullness. It is an utter surprise that he's resurrected. And fourthly, he walks through a wall. I'm not being funny. That's amazing, isn't it? The disciples are in a locked room. How else does he get in there? He walks through a wall. Jesus is amazing and he is full of surprises. And it's time we started surprising people with our love, our mercy, our compassion, our commitment to Jesus. It's time we started doing things because they're the right thing to do. It's time we started going on a front foot and making a difference in our day, surprising people with how we are. My ultimate spiritual hero has gone to be a Jesus, sadly, but he was a guy called Alex Buchanan. Now, Alex Buchanan was a great prophet guy. He was around for many years, and he'd had a number of strokes. He was deaf. He was physically one of the weakest, but spiritually the strongest. That's why I didn't call him Alex. I called him Yoda. And when Alex first went to work for a church, he was 23. And he went to this church, and it was a church with a choir. I make no comments on choirs. This is only about this context, not all contexts. But he went to a church with a choir, and he felt God say to him, the choir was holding the church back in worship. So he went to tell the minister at the end. The minister said, it's all right, Alex, it'll be fine. Just go away, pray about it, and if you're still feeling it, come back next week. They teach you that at seminary or Bible college, you know. They teach you just to say, go away, pray about it, because then it never comes up again. Four weeks in a row, Alex says the same thing to the minister. Four weeks in a row, the minister says, go away, it'll be fine. So on the fourth week, Alex goes home and he gets his axe. And he goes back to the church and he chops up the choir stalls. And he takes them out the front of the church and he has a fire. And the minister comes back and says, what are you doing? He says, I'm having a fire. He says, what with? He says, the choir stalls. The minister's got two options, either go with it or call the police. So he went with it. The church quadrupled in size in the next year because it needed to change at that point. I am not promoting anarchy. <laughs> but I am wondering if we got a bit too predictable. We, need, we read a Bible that's full of surprises and yet we make it so boring. You know, I was in a church recently and I, I thought this song had gone, but they were singing, when the spirit of the Lord is within my heart, I will dance as David danced, right? And I looked around and I thought, please don't. And you look at how Christianity is in the Bible and you think, what have we done to it? We've got to allow God to surprise us and surprise others with how he uses us. Let's bring what we have and let's say, Lord Jesus, please use this. Your little will go so far. I uh, was preaching somewhere and this guy came up to me afterwards and he said, you've got a real gift. So I was like, thank you. You know, I was pretending to be humble. Thank you. That's so kind. Thank you. He says, yeah, you've got a real gift for writing well below average books that sell really well. I can do sarcasm, but that's rude. And I was like, I'm, I'm hardly Shakespeare. And I only write to help people. And let me be honest, I've never made a penny from any book. Every royalty goes back to the organisation I work for. Why? Because I'm not doing it for the wrong reason. I'm doing it to try and help people meet Jesus. But I came away thinking, stuff yeah, I'm never going to write another book again. Until six weeks later, I got a Facebook message 
from what you might call a, is a backslidden Christian. He was 19. He'd gone home from uni for the holidays. And his mum had put a copy of my first book, Disappointed with Jesus, on his bedside table. Why do mums do that? It's like the lad left his cigarettes there. The cigarettes are gone and Santa mums left a Christian book. He said he got so bored during the holidays, eventually he read it. And he said he got to chapter 9 where I talk about surrendering my life to Jesus on a park bench. I talk very specifically, I explain the gospel and I say I surrender my life to Jesus in Mayo Park in Forest Hill, South London. And he's reading this, he's like, hang on. His parents live on Mayo Road opposite the park I gave my life to Jesus in. He gets to the end of the book, he puts the book down, he crosses the road, goes into Mayo Park, sits on a park bench on his own and surrenders his life to Jesus. That has nothing to do with me. I write well below average books that sell well. It has everything to do with saying, do you know what, Lord? I'm going to step up, I'm going to beat the criticism and I'm going to step forward for you and I'm going to allow you to surprise me in the world with how you choose to use me. Because Jesus breaks rules. He's full of surprises. Thirdly, he treats us individually. He treats us individually. You may have noticed as I read the passage, I didn't read Mary, I read Miriam. That's because he doesn't call her Mary, he calls her Miriam. You're like, well, how do you know he calls her Miriam? You weren't there. I'm like, I know I wasn't there. But why else would she call him Rabboni in Aramaic unless he spoke Aramaic to her? She must have been called Miriam, which is Mary in Aramaic. This is an amazing moment because Mary would have had long hair and she's feeling emotional and her, her eyes would have been fuzzy with the tears and Jesus is behind her. So she stood facing this way. Her hair is knotted and wet and in her face. Her eyes are sort of glassed over and glossy with the, the kind of tears and she looks over her shoulder and she sees the figure of a man but not much else. And of course it must be the gardener. And then in that moment, he says, Miriam. Now, here's the thing. They're in Jerusalem. Aramaic was not spoken in Jerusalem. Hebrew was spoken in Jerusalem. Jerusalem was full of educated people. Aramaic was spoken in Galilee. It has to be Jesus calling her using the uneducated language in this moment as he addresses her as Miriam. And it's so amazing that Jesus calls every individual by their individual name and treats them as an individual. Comparison is killing the church. Stop comparing. Jesus doesn't do that. He looks at you and he calls you individually. Whatever you've done before, whatever your backlog of sin and mess and nonsense, Jesus says to you today, you can leave that at my cross, you can be set free and you can be redeemed. Whoever you are, Jesus treats us as individuals. I met this girl once. She'd taken her forearm and she'd taken a Stanley knife. And she had written with a Stanley knife in her forearm the word worthless. It had scabbed over. It was a self-given tattoo and it looked like she'd be scarred for life. And I was running the youth work at something called New Wine in England. And one particular night we felt, you know what, let's stop doing everything for everyone. You know in youth ministry, one tip, you do any youth work, stop doing everything for the young people. We've got a mediator, he's called Jesus. But we then become this mediator, so every time a young person wants praying for, we pray for them. We don't say, you pray and I'll stand with you as you talk to God. Then they get to 25, we're like, 
Why haven't they got a personal relationship with Jesus? We did it all. So one of the things we tried to do was do less and less for young people and ask young people to directly access God. So there's about 500 young people there and about 100 teams stood around the side. We were just praying that God would bless what was going on. And we'd encourage these young people just to interact with God themselves. And this girl with this worthless tattoo in the middle starts jumping up and down. It looks like she's gone a bit crazy. We're like, what's going on here? She's jumping up and down. She starts crying. She's leaping around. She comes to the front. She shows me her forearm. And you know what? The word has gone. Because God looks at her and says, you are not worthless. You're my precious daughter. And he wipes away the self-given tattoo that she said that she's worthless. God looks at you. He treats you individually. He says, drop the lies from the world. I love you. And you know what? If you ever think you're not up to being used by Jesus, just look at the Bible. So encouraging. Noah planted the vineyard and got mashed up on his own wine. Abraham was proper old. Jacob was a liar. Rahab was a prostitute. David had an affair and was a murderer. Jonah ran from God. The disciples fell asleep whilst praying. The Samaritan woman was divorced more than once. And Lazarus was dead. Jesus wants to treat us as individuals and use us in spite of what we think is our mess. Failure is never final with God, is it? It's never final with God. It should never be final with us. You know, I believe in this tent tonight, there's some people that need to say sorry to someone else. Because you know what? Little things become big things and big things consume you. This God who treats us individually also requires of his children that we forgive one another. I'd love to think in Northern Ireland the church would never go to bed on an argument. It's what they tell you in marriage prep, don't they? They tell you in marriage prep to never go to bed on an argument. I know all about this. Because I am forever saying sorry in my marriage and it's, as yet it's never been my fault. However, <laughs> God treats us as individuals. We need to do the same for one another. Forgiving, dusting down and letting us press on. Because he breaks all the rules. He's full of surprises. He treats us individually. And finally, Jesus is uncomfortably faithful. He's uncomfortably faithful. You know, um, and I alluded to this a bit on Sunday morning at Port Stewart, but didn't tell the story in full. When um, about 12 years ago, Anne decided she wanted to have children. And I was like, all right, fair play. And we tried for a while and nothing happened. And I felt really sorry for Anne because she clearly had a fertility issue. And so we went through the tests and stuff and it turns out it was me. I was told I was basically sterile and to expect to never have children, but to keep trying. I remember saying, I'll take that for the team and getting told off by the missus. The month after we were told we'd probably never have children, Anne got pregnant. Amazing. Saviour, he can move the mountains. He can also impregnate women from sterile men. It's incredible. About 18 months after our daughter Amelie was born, my dad was over. My mum and dad live in America. And my dad was over. Now they're British. So when my dad comes home, I try and make him feel at home. So I went out to get the national dish of Great Britain, curry. (laughs) And I came back with curry. And when I got back to the house, my dad looked like he'd seen a ghost and Anne was crying. Anne took me into another room and she says, Gav, I'm pregnant again. I said, who's the dad? (laughs) You should never say that. Always assume a miracle. Obviously it was me. We went for a scan. I'm going to help you fellas who've not had kids yet. 
at the scan, right? Just pretend you can see it. It's just easier. And even though it looks like the combination between a sultana and a mushroom, right? It is cute. And we're there, but then very quickly, the midwife gets very serious. Because it's an ultrasound scan and tragically there is no sound. And she turns to us and she says, Reverend and Mrs. Calver, I'm really sorry. Your baby's not got a heartbeat. It's died in the womb. And do you know what? I could deal with miracle babies. And I could deal with no babies. But I wasn't sure I could deal with that. Feeling like I was getting messed around with. And my daughter, Amelie, who was 18 months old, came over and she hugged me on the leg. And I felt God speak to me more clearly than I have at any other time in my life. I felt him say to me, do not be ungrateful for that which you don't have, but be grateful for that which you do. And be faithful to me as I've been faithful to you. And so I was like, all right, we'll keep going. You know, uh, a couple of years later, Anne's pregnant again. By this point, I've accepted I've been healed. Every time I was at any event and they said, fertility issues, come and get prayed for, I was there. But I tell you something, and I know there's a range of us here, but no matter how charismatic you are, it's the only form of physical healing where no one dares lay on hands. Barry's look to me there shows I've just crossed the line. (laughs) I didn't think there was one. (laughs) We kept going and we were delighted when we went for a scan at 18 weeks. Until you know there's a problem when you start with two medics and you end up with 26 in the room with you. And you know there's a problem when medics really don't know what to do. And they told us our son, who was 18 weeks, about this big, was really, really sick. There was fluid everywhere, it was heavily anemic, and he had four antibodies that less than 1% of the population have. He says, there's no intervention we can do for this. Sorry, there's no cure, there's only intervention. They said our son had a 5% chance of making it into the world. And that the next day they'd have to do a blood transfusion in the womb. But not to really reckon much was going to happen. They made it clear to us as well, there were two donors on the UK blood list with the right blood we would need. And that Cambridge University would study us because they simply needed to learn from this because this never happens. And one or two women a year will have a blood transfusion in the womb before 24 weeks. This is 18 weeks, the earliest they can do it. So the next day we go into hospital. As soon as we get there, they say, we're just going to scan just to check if the baby's alive or not. Baby was alive. They did this blood transfusion in the womb. It's incredible what they can do. 18-week-old baby. They went through my wife's stomach into her womb and into our baby's stomach. Took out half the blood and put half new blood in. So at this moment, we realized it was a boy. My medical condition I'd been told I had before meant it was physically impossible to have boys. Because I don't understand the science properly, but I understand the theory that when it comes to sperm, the boys go out quick and they die quick. The women persevere. And they last five times as long. Hmm. so miracles all over the place but we're watching this screen and they take the blood and that and then then what they say to us is we now have to wait four hours because what they'll do later is scan and the risk at this stage is heart attack that's the real risk for the baby and they'll scan if the baby's moving in four hours time we'll fight another day if it's not it's over and I sat by Anne's bed as she slept off the operation she'd had and I sat there and I've never felt so isolated non-Christians say why does God allow suffering 
Christians say, where is God when I'm suffering? And I'll tell you where he was. He was holding my hand. And I'm there in this room. I'm feeling totally isolated. I'm feeling like God's holding my hand. And I feel compelled to pray a simple prayer. Lord Jesus, if this baby lives, you are good. And if this baby dies, you are still good. Either way, somehow, I'm going to get up tomorrow and say you are good. The baby was moving. We got to fight another day. That was great news. We had nine of these. Anne was in hospital every two days for a scan and a blood test. We had nine of these blood transfusions in the womb. Each time I prayed the same prayer, miraculously our son made it. He was born ten weeks early. He was delivered into the world by a C-section. We weren't allowed to touch him because he was going straight off into um, an incubator. But they said they would hold him up to show us. So they held up our 30-week-old baby to show us. In this moment, he weed in the professor's face. <laughs> Two things happen. Anne's embarrassed. I'm like, that's my son. <laughs> they put him in an incubator. We couldn't hold him for a few weeks. He had three more transfusions outside of the womb. But I tell you something, he was fine. And if you've seen him going around sight, he's the little one with the white hair who looks like he's eaten a premature baby. But friends, here's the thing. Jesus is uncomfortably faithful to us. Will we be faithful to him regardless of what's in front of us? I'm sick of people going for Jesus, then one stumbling block, one roadblock, one problem, one issue, gone. We have got to learn resilience. Jesus is the saviour of the world on the mountaintop and also in the valley. He is faithful to us. Will we be faithful to him? In John eleven sixteen, Thomas says to the disciples, let us go that we might die with Jesus. And yet here he's gone wandering. He misses out on Jesus visiting the disciples. But Jesus is so faithful. He comes back for him. Even in Thomas's unfaithfulness, Jesus comes back for him. You know, in Gethsemane, when Jesus prays to get the cup removed, he sweats blood. Sweating blood is the ultimate form of physical anxiety. When the body doesn't know what to do, it lets blood out. Jesus sweats blood in pleading that the cup would be removed, but he remains faithful. In contrast, it's, it's amazing how easily we give up. We let Jesus in a bit, but not totally. You know, today's my 15th wedding anniversary. Yeah. I don't know why you're clapping me. The one who's had the hard time is back home looking after the little ones. But you know what? On a wedding day, we make bigger promises to our spouses than most of us ever make to Jesus. When have you ever said to Jesus that you're going to be with him for better or worse? You're going to stick with him in sickness and in health. All you are, you give to him. All you have, you share with him. When have you ever said to Jesus that whatever happens, you're his? That's what we need. We need faithful Christianity that sticks by it. Jesus is radical. We must be the same. Breaking rules to get to people. Surprising people with our love and compassion. Treating people individually and allowing God to treat us individually. And being faithful the rest of our days. I had a, a little daydream the other week. Because I don't know about you, I love hearing the stories from around the world of revival, but I get a bit jealous. I know that's a bit sinful, but I'll be honest, I get jealous. And I had this little daydream. What would it look like for something so outrageous to kick off in the United Kingdom? The African pastors were illustrating their sermons from stories of the UK revival. Wouldn't that be fun? 
Maybe not. Maybe just I'm excited about that. But that would be fun. And it got me thinking, what would it really take for the UK to be set on fire for Jesus? I think it takes a bunch of people that allow Jesus to tell them what they should do, not their culture. A bunch of people that aren't predictable but go out on a limb. A bunch of people who treat everyone as someone Jesus died for. And a bunch of people who are faithful to the end. The only thing anyone's faithful to in life anymore is their football team. It's time we change that. Lifelong faithfulness to Jesus. And when I think of what it means to be a radical follower of Jesus, I'm simply left with the example of my late grandfather. You see, I'm from the Christian Mafia. I really am. It's like seven generations of reverends on my mum's side. And then um, my dad's entered in via marriage. And I've really got to come up with a good idea. My dad started Spring Harvest. My granddad started Tear Fund. I better think of something, eh? But my granddad was a great man. He was a Bible college principal. He'd also um, led the Evangelical Alliance in the UK. He'd done great stuff. He'd written more books than most of us have read. And he could speak all the biblical languages. Hebrew, Greek and Aramaic to understand every nuance. He knew everything there was, I thought, to know about Jesus. When he was 85 years old, he decided it was time for what he called early retirement. And he stopped preaching every Sunday. And over the next four or five years, he had a number of strokes and his body gave up on him. It meant in his early 90s, he simply sat in a chair sleeping for about 20 hours a day. His body was broken. It didn't work anymore. But his mind still worked. But only for 30 seconds at a time. His razor-sharp wit still worked as well, but again, only for 30 seconds at a time. He spent most of his time asleep. I realised this when I was round once for Sunday lunch, and my grandma was talking about the negative effect that witchcraft was having on the church in Britain. After about an hour and a half, my granddad woke up. He said, I know all about witches, having lived with one for 60 years. (laughs) He then went back to sleep. That was all I got out on him on the whole trip. That was it. And it was their diamond wedding anniversary. The great and the good of their age group in the UK church all gathered in this large auditorium to celebrate this couple. You know, in ministry, you don't get thanked that much. This was like the ministry equivalent of the Oscars. In your church, stop criticising your pastor and start thanking him or her. Why? Because in ministry, you get paid so little and criticised so much. Anyway, side note. This large auditorium was full of people. Person after person got up to thank them. The church planter, the businessman, the Bible college principal, the Bible translator, the missionary. Person after person after person. At first it was fun. After a while I think we'd all had enough. After three hours, well apart from my granddad actually, he just slept. After about three hours it was the final piece to be read out. It was a telegram from Sir Cliff Richard. My little cousin turns to me and says, who's Sir Cliff Richard? They read this telegram out and it says that Gilbert and Connie Kirby, because that's my grandparents' names, Gilbert and Connie Kirby have been the most significant spiritual influences of anyone on his life. The place went mad. There were blue rinse wigs flying, there was false teeth coming out of mouths, Zimmer frames going all over the place. Not quite, but people were excited. This was an exciting moment, apart from Grandpa. He was kipping. My grandma got up to thank everyone for coming. Thanks for coming. We couldn't have done it without you. It's been a great adventure. 
There's no way we could have done this without you. It's been so much fun. At this point, something really dangerous happened. My granddad woke up. And he showed his 30 seconds of breath were upon him. He got wheeled up, because he can't walk anymore, got wheeled up to the platform. He gets the microphone. He says, I'm not going to thank any of you for coming. We did this because Jesus came from highest heaven to lowest earth. And he became a baby boy that became a man walking the earth, giving food to the hungry, health to the sick, and life to the dead. But then Jesus took every wrong thing upon himself you've ever done, ever would do, ever could do, as he died on a cross in your place. And three days later, they visited the grave, but the grave was empty because Jesus defeated death. Because for Jesus to be God, he has to be alive. And he defeated the grave. He defeated death. He's alive. And Jesus wants a personal relationship with you today to liberate you from your sin and to set you free to know life in all its fullness. And if you don't know Jesus and you want to surrender your life today, would you just stand? Now, there's less than 10 non-Christians in the building. Six people stand up. And as they stand up, my granddad falls asleep. He gets wheeled off again. Someone else has to come up to pray the prayer, welcoming them into the kingdom. He died four months later. He'd preached into a microphone thousands of times. But that was the last one. And when I grow up, I want to be like my granddad. Because you know what? At 92, he broke all the rules. He ruined the party. I mean, he's British. I mean, come on. He's supposed to be polite. At 92, he was full of surprises. He was still pointing to whose he was. At 92, he still cared more about those in that place who didn't know Jesus than keeping everyone who did happy. And at 92, he was uncomfortably faithful to the God who'd been faithful to him throughout. Church, I think God's calling us to a gear change. To step up and rise up. To break some rules. To surprise some people. To treat all individually and to be uncomfortably faithful. And by doing so, change this island. Let's pray, shall we? Let's keep our eyes shut. I just want to do two things. Firstly... I just can't tell that story about my granddad and say that's who I want to be like and not respond in a similar manner. So if you don't know the Lord Jesus as your personal Lord and Saviour or right now you're nowhere with Jesus. You're just nowhere. You're playing a good charade at Christianity but you're nowhere with Jesus and you need to recommit your life to Jesus. If you're here tonight and you either need to surrender your life to Jesus for the first time and say I want to be a follower of Jesus or you need to recommit your life. We just put your hand up where you are if that's you tonight. We're going to give it a moment, but I do have a sense there's at least one or two. So if it's you tonight, just put your hand up nice and high so I can just see where those are. That's wonderful. I'm really sorry. I'm going to have to do what I did the other night. I can see a couple of hands, but I just need to look at the people I'm praying for. No one else is going to look at you. You'll be sat down before they open their eyes. But if you put your hand up, would you just stand so I know who I'm praying for? It's my real privilege to pray for you. And I just love you just to be brave enough to just stand so I know who I'm praying for. And if if you're a bit scared to stand on your own, feel free to stand with a friend. You don't have to stand on your own. You can stand with your friend. 
But if that's you tonight, just be brave enough to stand where you are. And I'm just going to pray. Jesus, I thank you that in this place tonight, people have surrendered themselves to you. Lord, we've seen this earlier in the week and we never get bored of seeing it and you don't get bored. Boy, are you having some parties in heaven this week. Lord, we thank you that you are a God who saves. And we pray, Lord, that these decisions made in this tent would last a lifetime, that they would be significant, that they'd be meaningful, that in the next few days, people would gather around my friends and really support them in all they are. And that you, King Jesus, would be all they live for. Thank you, Lord. To fulfill my promise, feel free to sit. But I'd love you to go to the prayer tent at the end. They would love to pray for you. And if you didn't stand because you just didn't want to, but you wanted to give your life to Jesus, do you know what? He's a God of grace. You didn't have to stand. You can go through to the prayer tent too, but we'll do that at the end. Secondly, I'm just abundantly aware that I go on a a little aeroplane on Saturday. And I go back to the minor land of the UK from the major land here. I'm really excited about what God might do in Northern Ireland. I'm really excited about what he's done amongst us this week. But at the end of this, my third of three talks on reaching lost people, I would just love to pray a prayer over anyone that really feels a deep sense that they want to be commissioned into being a missionary in this island. That they want to be someone who brings words of hope and truth. The other day we prayed for courage, but, but I'm going. So I want to pray a commissioning prayer on those who remain here that want to be missionaries here. Bring in hope, bring in life, and leading others to Jesus here in Northern Ireland. And if that's you and you're just sensing, and that could be a missionary in a workplace, that can be in a family, that can be on your street, that can be, if, if you can think of nothing else, that can be doing like what I do. But if you want to be used as a reacher of those who currently are not reached in this land, it would be my greatest privilege to pray a commissioning prayer over you. So if that's you and you're able, would you, would you just stand if that's you this evening? It only took a youth group for Jesus to change the world. What could he do with this? not going to dwell but I am going to just ask once more to be brave if you want to be prayed for to be commissioned as a missionary in Northern Ireland a bringer of hope and truth a reacher of those unreached just stand with everyone else if that's you tonight and you needed that extra prompt if you're able it's wonderful Lord Jesus, I want to pray that commitments made in this tent would feel real next week. I want to pray that mission would be taking place at home, not just sent all over the world. And I want to pray you would use these indigenous missionaries to make a difference in this land. Lord Jesus, It's great how many people go to church in this country, but would you set your church on fire? Would you set it on fire? Would the church in Northern Ireland be so healthy that it can't help but grow? Would it be infectious to those who don't know you? And would it be strong? 
But secondly, Lord, we pray that it would be a church that looks outwards. That you would bless and equip and anoint my friends who are standing to be your good news in their community. We believe, Lord, that people will meet you and be saved by you through the actions and the efforts of some of my friends. We believe, Lord, that an imprint would be made in this land. And we long, Lord, that your church would rise up and shine out with greater authority, but a great humility too. Lord, where rules are made up that are not of you, but of this world, would we be prepared to break them as you were? Lord, where people think they know what they're going to get from the church, would we surprise people as you surprised people? Lord, where... um, where we meet people and they've never been loved or treated as an individual would we show compassion and mercy and Lord not just those standing but all of us would none of us be lost from your number would we be faithful to you as you are faithful to us for the rest of our days would the church in Northern Ireland shut the back door and not lose anyone out of it finally Lord would you have your way in our day, in this land, that you would be glorified, that you would be the name above all names and that your kingdom might come on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, we pray that you would break through in new ways. We pray for Stormont, Lord, that that place would be under your authority. We pray, Lord Jesus, for the school system. We pray, Lord, for all the things that hold this place up, that they would worship you. And Lord in a slightly more superficial way we pray Lord that a song about a footballer that doesn't play would not dominate the tune of this land but the song of a God who conquered the grave would be the anthem rising over Northern Ireland Lord Jesus change, bless and move in this nation we pray and in your humour use my friends I ask